90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Drunk with sleep. <laughs> no, it's not. It's true. I'm, I'm glad you finished that <laughs> sentence. <laughs> I wish I was drunk with something else. Um, no, finals are over. I'm so excited. I mean, I had to endure the, you know, 50 emails of why is my grade this, you know. Yeah. But. I, I definitely have seen several folks uh, in the university community saying, like, I posted grades five minutes ago. How do I already have 20 I know, emails? I know. Oh, man. It's so terrible. It's like you feel you want to feel good and relaxed that you're done, but you know you're not. And you just click on your email box and you're like, oh, yeah, cool. <laughs> <laughs> no matter no amount of like warning will ever it'll will ever work for everybody you know but no say lovey <laughs> i had a shockingly low number this year i did have a couple that were super persistent but a shockingly no, low number of complaints for i don't know why but i'll take it all right yeah yeah how about you did you even know the semester was over <laughs> I did because I actually visited a, a local university and was talking to them about some of their equipment ah. and got the, well, we have students using the equipment for their uh, their final project, so we can't start on this job for another week and a half. That's right. Way to cram that in. Everything breaks in this last week just for that, for like theses being finished and <laughs> final projects. Yep. Well, and luckily, since they're local, you know, I was able to say, look, like if this thing breaks and it's one in the morning i'll be here in about 15 minutes <laughs> just give me a call and they were like oh my gosh <laughs> that'd be great customer service man it's uh it's important and becoming more so we, we were talking before the show started about how many places don't have good customer service yes exactly and it's like i'll pay more if i know that the, that a place has good co customer service and i know i'm not the only one that would do that so you know, oh, absolutely. It's yeah. a big deal. But, you know, I've also felt a little bit like uh, I was in a cold desert this week. Uh. Uh, <laughs> we've been having lows in the 20s the last few nights, and my building where the business is is not really that well insulated. So even with the heater going full blast, mm -hmm. it was like 58 when I left in there. <laughs> and this is why you and my husband get along so well, because he came in tonight and was like this is the last winter that i'm not insulating that shop <laughs> we're looking at trying to do something before the end of the winter because the heat bill's been outrageous <laughs> <laughs> if you could just sit in one spot you know just sit in your one little office with your one little space heater but i'm guessing that's not how you're going to get stuff done no, and it's really frustrating because as, you know, like the mill warms up, you can watch the tolerance change oh. until it gets like warm. Oh. <laughs> so I've been good. running spindle warm-up programs every morning to try to get the spindle uh, good and warm before I start machining so I don't have to keep tweaking things. Oh, yeah. That's a that's a good point. Hmm. Interesting. So, yeah. Uh, I feel you, man. It's going to be like 65 degrees on Christmas, though, so... Yay. It's true. Forecast above average temperatures for the, most of the country. Yay. It was really cold this weekend, but so I was good. 
had my one day of like staying at home with the hot chocolate. And then I remembered that this is the season I actually love Oklahoma because you can actually, you know, go outside most of the winter. So it's true. Not too bad. But nights. Yeah. Nights have been really chilly. Yes. Yes, they have. And we had freezing fog over here. So that was exciting. (gasps) I love that. I saw that actually for you. So Mm -hmm. we were in this. We were in a warning and we were both in the same warning. I don't remember if it was a freeze warning or something. I was like, oh, look at that. <laughs> the first time in a long time. Exactly. We're so close again. <laughs> <laughs> Enough of this loving. Let's talk about deserts. <laughs> All right. So <laughs> again, this, I know. Again. So this is the uh, the third and final installment. And final. But they're super fun to talk about. So I'm sure we'll come back to them at some point. Right, and we thought it'd be fun to talk about some of the uh, features that you find in deserts. Right, so we talked about how you form deserts, we talked about the processes that occur in deserts, and now just like what's unique to a desert, right? And so if you say desert, probably most people are going to think sand or say sand or draw sand dune, but what I thought that was interesting, a third of our earth is desert, but only half of those deserts are covered with sand. Right. And that is because, you know, deserts are windy and wind moves sand and eventually it moves all the sand and you're left with a gravelly Mars looking place. Right. Exactly. And you don't really, this is, (laughs) this is funny because how we have a bearded dragon. This is relevant. I promise. (laughs) We have a bearded dragon lizard. And we got given this lizard when our friends couldn't take it. They were moving to Hawaii, and they gave us this lizard that's going to live for 20 more years. Thank you. Um, (laughs) And we thought, what do we put in its cage, you know? And people said, sand. You put sand. It's a desert lizard. It's from Australia. Well, it's like, well, no, because actually they're mostly used to rocks. So lots of people put, you know, some sort of substrate that looks like just rocks and not sand she's got a little of both in her cage but yeah because the wind picks this stuff up we can talk all about hulstom's diagram maybe we'll talk about that next week i really love it it's my favorite part of sedimentology (laughs) uh so the, the wind likes to pick things up and it puts all this sand into the air thank goodness that's what helps make hurricanes and um yeah it all goes away and you're left with these things called deflation surfaces and it's just what you described which, I guess, you know, you deflate the desert, you move all the sand. Yeah, <laughs> I, don't know. I guess. Yeah, I know. That's that's what it's called. And you get these, like, in-between sand dunes and stuff, and they're just this hard, it just looks like asphalt. And it's almost actually what it is, because it's held together with some stuff called caliche. Yeah, so... Mm-hmm. is <laughs> mm-hmm. a fun word. <laughs> I love it. So yeah, Caliche, C-A-L-I-C-H-E, if you're going to look it up. And this messes up so many students. And I kind of actually think it's fun to do now because I also fell for this. But Caliche is that like white sort of coating that you get on rocks out in arid environments, not just the desert. It can be in just arid environments as well, but you get it everywhere in the desert. And it messes you up, especially when you're trying to figure out what type of rock it is. Because when we're trying to figure out rock types in sedimentology, we carry around our bottle of HCL. 
And well, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> when you stick it on some caliche, it goes crazy because it's a calcium carbonate deposit, but it can form on top of any rock and every single year. <laughs> someone in their strat column winds up putting all this calcium carbonate and they're like but it fizzed Ugh. so to back up a little bit here what shannon's talking about <laughs> <laughs> no I, this, this is my diatribe go ahead <laughs> is the uh the practice of when you're in the field if you want to know if something's a carbonate or not you can take your little bottle of hydrochloric acid very dilute that all geologists carry with them. My field bag still has one in the shoulder strap. <laughs> and you drop it on the rock. And if it bubbles and fizzes, it is a reaction releasing CO2 mm -hmm. as the carbonate's dissolved. If it doesn't, it's not carbonate. Right. And so it could be, you know, any kind of sandstone or it could even be dolomite, right? Because all your calcium carbonates turned into magnesium. Occasionally somebody's dripping it on a granite and we laugh. Oh, yeah. All the time. Um, unless you're looking for calcite in a granite and then it'll work, but, but, but yeah, so everyone does this and it's just this coating that forms. It's like that desert varnish stuff that we talked about, except it's not pretty at all. It's gross. And this is the importance, kids, of using your rock hammers <laughs> because it's a really fine, it's not, it's not microns thick. I mean, some of it can get pretty thick. But I've never seen it more than a few millimeters thick. And uh, you just knock it off, and then you can identify your rocks. But caliche is everywhere, and it acts as a cement in these sort of desert pavement deflation surfaces. Right. And so you do get a very sort of hard pan deposit there. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think desert pavement is a much better way to talk about it than deflation surface, because that is a weird process word, but... Yeah, desert pavement, just like asphalt, same thing, held together by this caliche. But just like any kind of cement, you still need water to deposit it, right? Right, and deserts aren't somewhere we commonly think of lots of water, but uh, now you should be flashing back to the, the desert movie where they're, they're <laughs> crawling along in the sand, and suddenly they see a bunch of palm trees in a spring. They see an oasis. Exactly. Now, some of them can be mirages, but these things are, are real. Um, because just like anywhere, you can have springs, and if spring comes to the surface, that's where you're going to get all the life in the desert, including, I mean, I don't know, palm trees, but, you know, <laughs> lots of vegetation at least, and anything that can live in those terrible conditions will form there. And we can do this too, just by drilling groundwater wells and you make these sort of man-made oases but it's the same thing exactly mm -hmm. and when you've got water not only does it bring cement in but it's also probably bringing some other minerals in that when the water evaporates away they get left behind and this is another common feature that we see in deserts are these evaporite deposits things like lots of salt which we talked about some last week right exactly so obviously that water is going to come in and be left behind, especially in the raining season, in these depressions. And we call those depressions playas or playa lakes. Okay. And so if you think about the Bonneville salt flats, that's a huge playa lake. If you're ever out there when it's raining, which is the only time I've been there, it's real weird. <laughs> like it just looks like the entire ground is a mirror. 
It's super strange. And then once that stuff evaporates, at least behind evaporites, everywhere. Um, But the weird thing about Playa Lakes is sort of where they came from is kind of weird to think about and what lives there because stuff lives there. Right. (laughs) So there's all kinds of weird things that can hibernate. Yeah. As these lakes dry up. Things like splayfoot toads. So these things can bury themselves and just like dehydrate for up to a year, just waiting for the next rainy season. Isn't that creepy? <laughs> it is. It reminds me if anybody's read the, the three body problem series of books, you'll find the you'll find that interesting ah, too. Ah, ah. I should start that again for my for my Goodreads list this next year. Um the other thing that happens is little fairy shrimps and they can live for a lot of years. Their eggs can be basically dehydrated in the soil in these playa lakes for many years. And then as soon as it rains, all these toads come up and all these fairy shrimp come up and then bugs come back. And (laughs) when I was reading about this, it said basically it's just one huge, like everyone is eating everything and then doing everything else that, you know, life does. And it's real loud. (laughs) (laughs) whenever it's raining in these playa lakes um but these playa lakes these depressions in the desert you know how do they get there in the first place i think it's really neat these are all usually leftovers from much larger lakes that were around during the last glacial maximum like the great salt lake is the remains of a much larger lake system uh called lake bonneville and these lakes were dammed up by glaciers and that's how they formed. And so you've got these big glaciers that would form, you know, in between these canyons and would just act as plugs. And then all these big canyons would fill up and be these huge lake systems. And then when we started to come out of the last glacial maximum, we got rid of all those plugs that were these ice plugs and we flooded everywhere. This is how we get like the scablands in Washington or huge ripple marks from the outwashing of Lake Bonneville, which is really cool. Right. Uh, and, you know, Bonneville's famous for people going and like doing land speed records there because mm-hmm. it's so flat and mm-hmm. it's such a perfect surface. Right. Yeah, exactly. So it's a hard surface. It's not like, you know, what you would imagine a clay lake or a, a rock bedded lake. Um, these playas are generally dry all the time. And even, like I said, I was in the Bonneville Flats when it was raining and that weird mirrored surface everywhere. But, you know, the water was only not even an inch thick. You know, it was still really flat everywhere. It was pretty cool. Um, But there are some kind of famous playas like Bonneville Flats if you're a dork and (laughs) think of geologic places (laughs) as being famous. And one of them is Racetrack Playa in Death Valley. Right. And this place, you know, I said before, well, it's pretty flat. Racetrack Playa exemplifies flat. (laughs) So there's three centimeters of elevation difference between the north and the south ends. Yeah, exactly. I mean, can you imagine? Like, when did they even find that out? When could they even come up with three centimeters of, you know, in a GPS measurement to figure out that it was that? I mean, you might have been able to do traditional surveying painfully. Yeah, I mean, that's a killer three-point problem right there. But uh, 
but the three centimeters, if you do it with GPS, it had to be after the unscrambling. So uh-huh. during the Clinton administration. Right. Exactly. Oh, that's funny. Um, so why is racetrack playa famous? Well, <laughs> these are real cool. Uh, sailing stones. I, I thought that I remembered that you liked these quite a bit. Yeah. So there were these little rocks that you would see sort of a, a track behind them. Like they had been drug along the ground and left a, a rut mm-hmm. or not really a rut, but left, left a track. I mean, some of them are not very little. Some of them are many kilograms. Yeah, okay, fair. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying. I guess in geologic terms, that would be boulder, but not what you think of when I say the word boulder. Absolutely. Yeah, so like some of them might be a little hard to pick up. Yeah, like football-sized things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so we didn't know for a long time what was going on. Like were people coming out and dragging these things in the middle of the night? And that's crazy that we didn't know. And racetrack playa okay so death valley national park is very large (laughs) it's not just this one tiny spot and the place where most people stop racetrack playa you have to have a four-wheel drive vehicle um i was told that you have to have at least you should have at least two spare tires if not more when you go (laughs) because the (laughs) ranger said he hadn't met anyone yet who hadn't gotten a flat the first time they went out there so this playa is way 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 up in the hills so for someone to be doing this you know going out and moving these rocks and there's no footprints around so the playa is filled with mud cracks when it's dry right so if somebody walked on it you would know these are like the crop circles of of the playas <laughs> the crop circles of geology <laughs> exactly and that's the episode title uh, <laughs> uh yes i'm writing it down now <laughs> But we just recently, like within the last, you know, decade, have figured out what's doing this, right? This was a mystery for a long time. I remember when, yeah. we, okay, I when thought we figured this out. It was not very long ago. No. Yeah. Uh, it, it's really just wind. Yeah. Wind and ice, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't take a whole lot to move these things on such a flat, relatively smooth surface. Mm-hmm. And I think this is going along with how we didn't really realize how we always say he- deserts are lack humidity, but the humidity goes up at night. And I think this is part of that. We didn't realize how humid deserts actually get at night. And it, I mean, it's like microns, millimeter of ice, not even, not even a millimeter of ice to get these things to move. Right. So you, you know, get like preferential ice buildup and expansion, right? Mm-hmm. And that's enough to drive these rocks across this super flat surface, mm-hmm. which is awesome. So when I say wind, it's not the wind literally pushing the rock. Right. <laughs> it's wind causing preferentialized formation. Should yes. clarify that a little bit. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because that's why they call them saline stones, because they thought it was the wind. But they also, you can't move a you know, kilogram rock with wind across a mud crack without ice, which didn't realize was happening, I guess, as frequently as it does. But there's some really cool time lapses now of these things. They're fast. Yeah. <laughs> like, wh- how, what was the thing? A hundred meters in five hours, I think was one of them that I, that I read the rate of movement on or something. Maybe I it was. I didn't remember it being that fast. It was something crazy. Okay. I'm going to look this up. You go ahead. <laughs> Okay, so, but yeah, so it's these these freeze-thaw cycles. 
that are helping drive these things along. And I, I just think they're fascinating. And it was so cool that it was an unsolved mystery for such a long time in geology. Yeah, because you don't get that many like big things that get solved in your lifetime, right? Like that's neat. Okay, five meters per minute. That's real fast. <laughs> wow. Okay, I didn't realize it was that fast. I didn't either. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, that's Wikipedia, so I'm just saying. Right. I'm not sure. But yeah, it's real cool to watch. And creepy. Okay, so um, all these articles, yeah, 2014 is when they when they solved this. Yeah, so I was in grad school. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so that's and, probably the coolest part of the desert. Well, they're pretty cool, but, um, well, it's finally time. <laughs> I didn't even write any notes. I just figured you were going to take this whole part. I'm going to go get a beer. Zentifex. Yep. <laughs> I'll be back. Um, go for it. What's a Ventifact? Which also sounds like a crop circle of geology. <laughs> right. Um, so they're also called like wind faceted rocks. That's not nearly as fun. Wind canter though. Ooh. I like that one as well. I like that one too. Um. Basically, it means that you've got wind driving sand or ice or particulate. And it's like you put the sandstone in a sandblaster and just sit there and, you know, artisanally sculpted it to sell on Etsy. Uh, 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 I am sure these things are for sale on Etsy because they look really cool. They do. And they've got some really crazy (laughs) shapes. Like... Sometimes you get one that's just one predominant wind direction. And so it's like, you know, looks like a normal rock on one side, but it's got this huge angle that's sandblasted almost flat on the other. Uh-huh. Yep. Yep. Uh, you can also get uh, exquisite demonstrations of wind profile with height off the surface. Yes, because this can happen on pretty big rocks. And that is super cool. I love this one. <laughs> yeah. And so close to the ground, the wind is slowed down by frictional drag with the ground and viscous drag mm-hmm. with the air coupled there it's like a very thin boundary layer mm-hmm. um, as you go up that coupling decreases and so you get large rocks uh, that are above the height that sand is lofted to with or well dominantly lofted to mm-hmm. with a little narrow spindly base supporting them that then starts to widen again towards the ground where you get the viscous drag again yeah yeah it's real cool looking is this the yardangs is that one of the things that is formed by this process i don't know if a yardang is formed by this process well it's it's sculpted by prevailing wind directions but okay, I don't so know it has to be then yeah yeah i don't know if you necessarily i always think of benefax as being like really smooth though Generally, but I mean, there are some pretty angular ones I've still seen called Ventifax. Yeah, well, that's true. Well, maybe Yardang is then. Um, I learned this word when we did our Geology ABC show. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) This was your word, not mine. (laughs) Um, So the other thing that happens is one of your favorite said processes. Ooh, okay. Uh, When you're forming these, the mushrooms, like the narrow spindly bases, Mm -hmm. Uh, you also that 
erosion at the low to mid heights is enhanced by saltation. Yeah, I do love saltation. <laughs> so little bouncing sand grains. Uh, how sand moves is I, I tried to teach a class sort of on this. Um, and I, I failed at that. I mean, the class was good, but I failed at teaching the sand dynamics. Um, everyone got real scared when I wrote a, a math equation on the board. <laughs> so we were done after that. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, you can talk about how sand moves all day long. It's real interesting. Um, I have a Ventifact from Antarctica. Oh, really? I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When uh, she's the current director of our school now, uh, Lynn Sorgan came back from Antarctica. She brought back a whole pile of them. And I don't know if she did this or somebody else did, but they, she put them all in little bags with a little slip of paper that said, this is a Ventifact from Antarctica. <laughs> that's real oh, that's cool. That's pretty cool. Yeah. It was really neat. She did a colloquium and then gave everybody in the room a little Ventifact. So I've got this little dark obviously chemically weathered rock but it's super smooth on <laughs> yeah on two sides it looks like it's like a little ship going through the water so it's pretty neat so that is sort of what i think of with vinifex mm-hmm. but they can also be pitted or striated yeah i don't know <laughs> yes that is true but my vitifact in my head is smooth as well <laughs> Right. Uh, also, we really need some more good rock sample photography. Mm-hmm. Because if you go try to find photos of Ventifex, you always find the same half a dozen. <laughs> the photogenic Ventifex. Well, no, they're ancient. Oh, that's hilarious. Like, like there's, a, there's one from Wyoming that I see held up all the time and it's a overexposed black and white photograph from 1930 you can google it right now and you find that photo like five times right <laughs> ah, or so like creepy. there's one in uh in chile in the atacama desert mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that is a real it's like sort of like a mushroom but it looks more like an aircraft carrier hole in cross section like it's not real huge uh-huh. um that's from the 60s Oh, man. That's if you search funny. for pitted event effects, you find some, like, Riverside, California examples. Uh, so far, the oldest photo I found in that category was 1905. Wow. Uh, wow. By Mendenhall, by the way. Oh, nice. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but... Come on, we really need some better sample photography, people. Oh, that is super <laughs> funny. I guess it's too uh, it's too um, daunting to take out, you know, one of those fancy cameras to just look at Vinifax. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, I mean, you don't want to take your nice photographic gear with pristine glass surfaces out to yeah. take a photo of something that was literally shaped it, by correct exactly eroding get wind. some saltation on your uh, on your lenses right there uh i did find a fun paper just searching right now that there's a criteria for the identification of vitifax in the geologic record all right uh-huh um i get some really weird vitifax and they're not like the traditional ones like you and i always talk about um this <laughs> If anyone is ever on Pinterest as much as I am, <laughs> they have these things called like Hasselback potatoes. And it's like you take a potato and you slice it and then you stuff stuff in between the slices, right? 
Okay, is, yeah, we did that once. Yeah, this is related. Um, so you get venifacts that look like that. The way that they weather, you'll get these weird, like, egg-shaped limestones or dole stones, really, a lot um, out in Arizona, where I do some of my field work. And they'll start to crack like that. And they'll literally look like one of those potatoes. And it's all wind-driven abrasion that does it. Wow, I've never seen one of those. It, I know. I saw one for the first time uh, a couple years ago when I went out with my student. And he was like, you know what this is? <laughs> Which is clearly what the geologist who had first taken him out there, you know, did to him. So it was pretty funny. Um, but yeah, they're real weird. They just look like a sliced baked potato. And you pick them up and they just crumble. It's impressive what kind of weathering you can do with wind. Did you pull out your classic uh, geology professor answer of, well, it's intuitively obvious to the most <laughs> casual observer. You tell me what you think it is. <laughs> <laughs> Heck yeah, I did. <laughs> yep. Um, yeah, but this is how you get all this wind scouring stuff. It's how you get hoodoos, which I didn't even write down here. That's a really fun desert thing, too. And it's those, um, you know, like a big balanced rock or something like that. It's called a hoodoo. And it's the same sort of wind scouring that creates that. Sometimes that that's can be water sculpted as well. Right. Yeah. But we're missing the most <laughs> obvious morphologic feature of the desert so far. Pyramids? Well. Kind of. I mean. Th th those were placed by you know, spaceships. Oh, yeah, certain. Just like the sailing rocks. Right. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, dunes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so if you say draw a desert, you get dunes and a camel, right? That's Pretty how, much. That's how we do this. So even though that only half of the third of the desert is filled with sands, yeah, this is definitely the most common thing that you're going to think about. Um, but most of the sand in the deserts isn't actually in dunes. They're in these big seas called ergs, which is not the measure of energy erg, even though it is spelled exactly the same way. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. I know. Yeah. I knew you were going to hate this. <laughs> so ergs are 125 square kilometers or larger sand seas. Um, but if they're smaller than that, you can just call them dune fields. I still... I know. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only reason I put it in, John. <laughs> I'm so used to thinking of an erg in I... physics that now you're like, well, it's really an area. Threshold. Ah. Oh. <laughs> oh, That's the only reason I put it in. I knew it would drive you insane. <laughs> You literally. Well, my night is ruined now. I know. You're so. welcome. You have to drink it off. You can't even Google erg without only coming up with, you know, the normal erg. You have to say, like, sand erg. So I don't know if people don't use this word as much as I do. <laughs> Excuse me while I go on a Wikipedia editing crusade against ah, this. Ah, ah. It's erg, uh, parenthesis, landform. <laughs> Is what I need to look up. <laughs> so, okay, you got these big sand seas. <laughs> Use your geology words. <laughs> sand seas. And they, uh, you've got wind blowing across it, and it's going to create 
uh, features, much like we would see as bed forms in a stream. Right. Exactly. I mean, and we see bed dunes in a stream. <laughs> so Right. Exactly. And this isn't just on Earth, which is what's so much fun about it, right? This is on Mars. This is on Titan, my favorite. <laughs> you get these dunes everywhere. This is just a, a fluid dynamics thing. Just simple fluid dynamics. Just so <laughs> exactly <laughs> dunes tell us a lot about the environment they formed in such as the wind direction correct and that's basically how we classify them um the shape of what the dune looks like but they're technically classified on the number of slip faces yeah yeah <laughs> so if you're thinking of just a dune a child would draw or that I would draw, because I'm obviously mostly a child. Um, it's got one long side and one sharp side, right? And the long side is the stoss side. It's where all the sand comes up if your wind is blowing from one direction. And then it falls down that sharp side, which is the lee side. Okay, and that's the slip face. Basically where sand is migrating down. I mean, it's where you're going above and beyond the angle of repose and yeah things are slipping yes yeah exactly (laughs) then you fall over the little edge and there you go and so that's how your dunes move and how you migrate or whatever but it's all based on wind right because you've got a stoss and a leeward side of the dune in that case of that one dune and so wind can come from a bunch of different directions and so your number of slip faces is how we talk about it and you do have sand that has zero slip faces and because you should always start counting at zero (laughs) but these are just piles of sand (laughs) yeah and i like how the notes you said these are rare i i beg to differ (laughs) okay i mean the dome part of them is kind of rare it's probably hard to find just a dome of sand that doesn't have a slip face Okay, I could see that. I mean, you'd have to have the right conditions so it didn't get too clumpy. And Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, a big one. <laughs> I think this probably yeah. happens on a small scale quite a bit. But you say that uh, these are found on the, the shores of our sand seas. <laughs> uh, that's not what the notes say, John. <laughs> So they're they're on the the upwind side, if you will. Uh-huh. Uh, of the <laughs> not going to use that word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's hard to pile up sand without having a slip face. Essentially, that's what it means by rare. But also, uh, if you've got some weird wind directions, I guess you get these like stringers within the sand sheet. You know, it's not just flat all the time. And so those things that don't really have an exact slip face that's definable. That's where we live, in this zero-slip faces space. This feels very like something a mathematician would have come up with. Oh, you better believe it. (laughs) (laughs) I think, yeah, sediment transport is the the math side of geology, I believe. That and that chemistry part of IGMAT, but we don't talk about that. (laughs) Right. So if there's a zero-slip face condition, I assume there's a one? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. there's a one, and this is the dune that, yeah, children would draw. Um, <laughs> and these are called Barkan dunes, or people might call them transverse dunes. And so 
how I teach this, but you're going to have to know your waxing and waning of the moon. So if you draw a waning crescent moon, okay, so that's like if you make a C with your left hand, okay, you've got a waning crescent moon. Okay, yeah, I got, I've got it. So I you see like uh -huh. you would properly write it. Right, correct. Um, and so like your finger, the tips of your finger and the tips of your thumb are called the horns. And this is a dune with one slip face. And the wind direction in this case is from the left to the right. Right. And so to be clear, the C shape is when you're looking down in map view. Correct. It's not like we got a breaker of sand here. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, these are a little almost, I mean, they're not quite as sharply curved as a horseshoe. But, yeah, sort of like that kind of shape. Right. Mm -hmm. When you're looking down on a satellite image. Right. And these are the most common dune type both here and on Mars. Right. And yeah, you said it was what a kid would draw. I would probably say, yeah, but it might also look more like waves in a cross section. Well, oh, yeah. Well, if you're going to draw one, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So that inside of the sea is your slip face. That's your leeward side. And then the outer part of the sea. You know, that's where the wind is coming from, and that's your much, you know, lower angle tangential stoss side there. So they kind of right. point into the wind, if you want to think Which about it that way. Which is counterintuitive. It is very counterintuitive. Yeah. But <laughs> it, you're, you're not going to probably be able to make these super long linear features that often. They happen. <laughs> but you can get these segments where the conditions are right for it to have this happen and then the edges feather out like right you you have to have some sort of boundary condition here right exactly um i like to these to me you know you're not going to get just like you said you're not going to get that linear thing because somewhere you're going to get a perturbation in it and once you get that perturbation now you're going to start to make that crescent shape and that's just the common, the most common dune shape. And that's why fluid dynamics is hard. <laughs> yeah, anytime you get a nice linear uniform thing, some infinitesimal thing breaks it all up. Exactly. And makes these weird seas that point into the wind, even though that's not what you would think of. And what you might think of is the other type of one or more slip faces, which is a parabolic dune. So now instead of a, if we're still doing our wind from left to right, I found out on my last exam, people still don't understand wind direction, but that's another show. <laughs> so if our wind <laughs> direction is from left to right, now we make a waxing crescent moon. So now you make a crescent moon with your right hand, same wind direction from left to right. And that's what a parabolic dune looks like. So this would be the one that you would probably guess the wind direction of. Correct. <laughs> but you need something because uh, we explained the physics of why the, uh, the the classic dune looks as it does. So why is the parabolic dune reversed? Well, why is it not a transverse dune? Well, something has to be pinning those edges down. Mm -hmm. So now we're not going to call them horns. We're going to call them arms. And each arm is anchored by pesky vegetation. Right. So roots uh -huh. can 
can make a big difference here. And then you do get the edges are anchored. They're not going to move, but the dune continues to migrate with the wind and makes the C shape the other way. Right. So you're basically turning your bark and dune inside out. Because right. you've got all this vegetation that is incredibly good at holding sand in place. Thank goodness, or else the entire panhandles of Texas and Oklahoma would be another erg. <laughs> they would be potential large areas of sand. Yeah, they really would be, and probably will be, maybe in our lifetime. But again, I get ahead of myself. <laughs> so this parabolic dune, um, these happen a lot on beaches because you get a lot of seagrass. So parabolic dunes are kind of these smaller... Well, they they don't have to be smaller, but you'll see these very frequently sort of back behind a beach where you get the predicted dune field because there's all kinds of vegetation that usually lives there. Right. I mean, you get them in the desert too, but. So then that's one or one or more slip faces, but what about two or more slip faces? Mm-hmm. And this is where you get reversing dunes or big long linear dunes and the only way to get two slope faces is to have two wind directions and sometimes you read that you have two prevailing directions <laughs> which always blows my mind when someone <laughs> writes that i know <laughs> that's a that's a heck of a vortex system you're putting up there <laughs> well okay you have a bimodal wind direction distribution yes yeah i put my prevailing in quotation marks just because that's obnoxious (laughs) right (laughs) yeah so you get seasonal changes right seasonal changes in wind direction can create these either reversing dunes or these long linear dunes and we say long and linear i mean the largest one i found or the longest one i found was like 160 kilometers long which is crazy yeah one dune (laughs) and I would say this probably has to do with the fact that, okay, yeah, you've got a perturbation uh, and it starts maybe starting to try to rip that linear structure apart, but then the season changes and the winds go in the other direction. Yeah. <laughs> and exactly. the effects of that perturbation now work in the opposite direction. Exactly. It's just like rolling your big like tube of Play-Doh out, you know, like it's kind of wonky, but overall it's still linear as you roll it back and forth and back and forth. That's how I imagine these <laughs> That's a good analogy. I yeah, think. there you go. <laughs> um, what I found, this is kind of neat too, is I found a lot of pictures of that these can kind of form more resistant ridges at the tops. I guess maybe just because they don't actually travel like bark and dunes could. Um, and they, they call them Chinese walls because <laughs> they just look like these super long, linear, you know, really resistant layers at the top of the sand dunes. I thought that was kind of cool. It's one of those dunes where in the movie they say, okay, we'll just go around. Yeah, yeah, 160 kilometers later. That turns out to be a bad idea. Uh, There's some really great pictures of dune types um, on the Great Sand Dunes National Park website, and that's where I found these, the coolest Chinese wall pictures. Um, Because in Great Sand Dunes, which is in Colorado, so not somewhere you think of having sand dunes. There's a lot of really weird wind things happening because this is a sand see that's out in front of several mountain ranges and they get a lot of my favorite dunes which are three or more slip faces star dunes yay (laughs) i love these 
They're so cool. <laughs> yes, when you have multiple prevailing wind directions. <laughs> uh, when you have wind that shifts around a lot, uh, you can get... I guess star is really the best description. Yeah, exactly. You, you can get dunes. Uh, okay, I guess physicists rename it. So we call them radial dunes. Blah, blah. Star dunes. That was in the official sedimentology book. I just want you to know. So Is it the same book that has an erg? Look, you, <laughs> you leave my erg landform alone. Um, so if you had a dome of sand... And you like picked it up with your fingers, like you put all your fingers on it and tried to pick up sand off the top. What you have left behind is a star dune. Right. And <laughs> so this automatically sounds like you've got some funky wind patterns going on. Because where do you have wind that shifts direction this much? Um, convergent wind fields. Right. Exactly. And so I was just talking about great sand dunes. Because it is in between a whole bunch of different mountain ranges. So you get differential heating and there are different rock types. And then you're going to get downslope winds that are prevalent from one direction or the other or the other or the other. <laughs> and so as you, you know, change that up and get sort of these eddies, that's what you do to the sand. And what could be more perfect for creating something like this then and this does sound like a physicist then a perfectly circular mountain range uh-huh which a geologist is like well yeah that exists it's a crater exactly so inside mars we have these circular mountain ranges mm-hmm. and some of them are really big they have ergs it's... in the bottom of them <laughs> and <laughs> uh, you can get weird multi-directional downslope flows yeah. that can cause these star dune forms. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of these on Mars. They're really cool. So star dunes are real funny. They're fun to say. They're fun to think about. It's fun to make John cringe when you say multiple prevailing wind directions. <laughs> it's always the sedimentology shows. I know. I love it. I'm so glad we did three <laughs> three shows in a row about this. Like it's made my year. <laughs> well, I'm I'm glad we did it before the end of the year because you're about to start 2020 again. Uh oh. <laughs> so beginning in uh, 2020, we're going to switch this to uh, pure theoretical physics talk. <laughs> oh, I'll bring it back around. Don't you worry. Yeah. The first well, one's uh, going to be on Hulstrom's diagram. Oh. <laughs> oh, I think uh, you might get some ideas from this week's Fun Paper Friday. Yay. Do you like how I wove this all together? Uh, yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So the paper is A Contribution to the Mathematical Theory of Big Game Hunting by Petard. I love it. Um, this is from 1938. Yep. <laughs> Eight years after some of the canonical Ventifact pictures were taken. Exactly. <laughs> it was probably inspired um, by, <laughs> by those. 
Um, so this is in the American Mathematical Monthly, and <laughs> it's fantastic. It's basically how to catch a lion in the desert. <laughs> yes, and how to do so using the common approaches <laughs> of the field of mathematics, theoretical physics, and experimental physics. I love this paper so much. I was so excited. (laughs) 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 So really, you know, it says that (laughs) it is abstract. He's saying, you know, like many other branches of knowledge to which mathematical techniques have been applied in recent years, the mathematical theory of big game hunting has a singularly happy unifying effect on the most diverse branches of the exact sciences. Which I think we should go back to calling them the exact sciences. <laughs> yeah. And I, I also enjoy in the uh, acknowledgments, which are in the introduction. Uh, so th- there there are several. Okay. The MIT chapter of the Society for Useless Research. Uh, and to numerous individual contributors, known and unknown, conscious and unconscious. <laughs> Yeah, I thought that was pretty good. So see, people have been doing fun papers since the 30s. This is great. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So there's, I mean, he has 16 of these listed, and I figured that we could just, you know, do the highlights of our our faves here. Um, So what was your favorite mathematical method? Oh, it had to be the Pinot method. (laughs) Please. Go on. (laughs) Uh, so, So do you remember the Pinot curves? Uh, I've tried to block it out. <laughs> so, so Pino curve is what we call a space filling curve. Mm-hmm. Uh, and go look up. You, you thought stereo nuts were bad to try to describe. Oh, God, go look no. up Pino curve. Uh, <laughs> but th- the name implies it. It mm-hmm. is a curve that will fill an arbitrary space. So how do you catch uh, a lion? <laughs> so the Pino method. Construct by standard methods a continuous curve passing through every point of the desert. That's trivial. Uh, it has been remarked that it is possible to traverse such a curve in an arbitrarily short time. This remark was actually made uh, by Hilbert, coincidentally, yeah. of the Hilbert transform. Yes. Uh, and this is also related to the Cantar ternary set, but anyway. <laughs> uh, so armed with a spear, we traverse the curve in a time shorter than in which a lion can move his own length. Done. Oh, that's great. Um, <laughs> my favorite was, a, I don't know if it was easier, uh, was the method of inverse geometry. <laughs> so <laughs> we place a spherical cage in the desert, enter it, and lock it. We perform an inversion with respect to the cage. The lion then is in the interior of the cage, and we're on the outside. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought that was classic. Elegant, mm-hmm. simple. <laughs> oh man, there's so many good ones. Um, so less of them from the theoretical physics methods, but they're still there. Yeah, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I think the method of nuclear physics was my favorite here. Oh, okay. Uh, so we place a tame line in a cage. <laughs> Seemingly a simple operation. Uh, we apply the Majorana operator. <laughs> Between it and a wild line. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's good. If you're not a nuclear physics uh, <laughs> fan, there's some Wikipedia help out there for you. Uh, that one's pretty good. I think the relativistic method was my favorite in this one. 
So how do you do it relativistically? So we distribute about the desert lion bait containing large proportions of the companion of Sirius. When enough bait has been taken, we project a beam of light across the desert. Obviously, this beam of light is going to bend around the lion, who will then become so dizzy he could be approached with impunity. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I like to think about a cat chasing a laser when that one, (laughs) when I read that one. Yeah. (laughs) Cat is a cat. Yep, exactly. Uh, Now, you can't steal mine, but I know you're not going to from experimental physics. No, I know which one is your favorite, and (laughs) it was good, but... uh... The thermodynamical method was my favorite because I'm a thermo geek. Uh, 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 uh. This is pretty funny. So, <laughs> and this is so beautiful. It's so physics. Can't even read it. It's so and it's such an experimental physicist statement. It is like even Constru- from the 30s, <laughs> nothing has changed. <laughs> Construct a semi-permeable mem- membrane. Permeable to everything except lions. Sweep it across the desert. Home the desert. That's exactly where my mind went with this. I'm crying. Was I the, can't the, the even. space balls comb the desert scene? I can't keep going. <laughs> oh man. Oh, that's really good. Um, so the magneto optical method is my favorite. This one makes sense because it's magnetically driven inclined <laughs> see what i did there yeah so okay D- describe the magneto op- optical i don't know method. if i can i'm laughing so hard okay so we plant a large lenticular bed of catnip Nepotent. an erg of catnip if you will an erg of catnip and he gives the scientific name of catnip obviously um whose axis lies around the direction of the horizontal component of the earth's magnetic field and then we put a cage at one of its foci then, I love it, we're going to plant a lot of spinach in the desert. Because, Magnetized spinach because it contains a lot of iron. Because it contains a lot of iron, right. So the spinach is going to be eaten by the herbivorous denizens of the desert, which are in turn eaten by lions. Now you've got your lions oriented parallel to Earth's magnetic field. And you have consequently have a beam of lions focused by the catnip upon the cage. <laughs> Oh, yes. Oh, man. This is one of my favorite ones. I might just print this out and hang it up. It's only two pages long. It's only two pages. Uh, there are so many great <laughs> references. There really are. Some uh, of these weren't all that far from where they were, you know, new things yeah, either. I know, which is even cooler that it's kind of like, a, you know, you're supposed to write a, a summary paper at one point showing you looked at everything. <laughs> this is it Mm -hmm. it's great in Uh, math like there's the couchy method if if you haven't taken uh complex number theory in a while (laughs) let let this be your refresher it's it's really really good (laughs) yeah oh yeah there are lots of setting the limits to lions (laughs) Mm -hmm. it's it's yeah I'm not going to quit laughing about it. It's super good. <laughs> you thought a series converge into the kit. Yep. yep. Yeah. It's good. Print off this two-page paper. It's hilarious. Hang it up. It's fantastic. Excellent. So <sighs> if you have a preferred way of conducting your big game hunting for lions, <laughs> 
we like to hear what would the geological methods be oh no yeah let's think about that and please send us your answers for that <laughs> show at don'tpanicgeocast.com um i would love to start this conversation in the slack chat room so maybe i'll get in there tomorrow and well not tomorrow but <laughs> after this we airs, might record a little early <laughs> exactly <laughs> after this airs and we can talk about it um and we're on the don't panic channel of the software underground you can tweet us at don't panic geo i am at shannon doolin john is at geo underscore lehman um, as always, thank you to our Patreon supporters for helping us keep this going. If you would like to support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash don'tpanicgeo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies. 